Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 42, Are We There Yet? Where we will be looking at Chapter 89 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of rising action. All right, real talk, guys. Because we've been kind of doing this sporadically, I have kind of forgotten the spiel, so I have to read it. Each week, we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. We will also do a Phronemos, which isn't written down on this. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. I think next time we will get back to things like interesting fact and our summary of the section don't quote me on that though before we begin let's get some disclaimers out of the way first of all we are in no way affiliated with patrick roth's or his publisher.books secondly please tell me you've read the books or that you don't care about spoilers one of those things should probably be true needless to say beyond this point here be spoilers also word to our community please be kind to yourselves one another and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring all right so uh, let's dive into chapter 89, Losing the Light. All right. So first off, when we chose this lens to look through, I think we both remembered it being kind of that jumping off point where we've been slogging through the elves for a little while. And all of a sudden, here's a little and everything kind of changes. And then it's like we're running downhill, picking up speed. So this is the space where... We've hit that lull and we're just changing course. But that's not to say that there isn't more slogging to be done before we get to that in this chapter. In this chapter and honestly, probably a little bit further on. But the other thing that we could look at this through is kind of that shared misery, relatability kind of a lens rather than just looking at it through the rising action that we are beginning to go through. One of the things that I noticed is that this is where Kvoth runs into the limits of his borrowed power. We remember that meditation from Mayor Alvaron about borrowed power versus inherent power. And Kvoth has really been leaning on a lot of that, especially in how he deals with Daydan. The mayor said that I was in charge, which, I mean, we all know is really just a fiction that everybody has agreed to. Right. It does remind me, and I'm probably reiterating a story I've already told, so I'll just say it quickly. Reminds me so much of when we volunteered to help out with a booth at Comic-Con. And then the next year, I was put in charge and actually had a paid position for this. Not very much, but I at least felt like I had some power behind what I said until... I interacted with the other volunteers who had been working there longer than I had. We are still friends with at least one of them. And they knew their shirt just fine. So little upstart did not have power over them (laughs) and did not have the power to schedule them. They knew what they were about and they did what they were supposed to do. And they kind of laughed at me. But because I understood that they weren't coming at it from a place of malice... I wasn't so terribly offended. I'm just like, do what you do. Yeah. Well, and like it takes a fair amount of maturity to be able to accept sort of that challenge to that authority. Kvoth does not have that. Oh, no, 
no, no, no. But I would like to get into why I say this is a little bit more of that relatability to me. So there are a few things that happen. First off, this chapter is not very long. It's a few pages. But when Quoth says, this might sound like a small thing, but if you've ever tried to eat a piece of wet bread after a day of walking in the rain, you know what sort of mood it puts you in. And so my point is that sometimes you can be having an okay day and something just tanks it. And then ever after, anything that would have been small, inconsequential, mildly annoying, not terrible, is the worst dang thing ever. Yeah. Like, Cloth externalizes a lot of this when he talks about how, you know, Dedan and Hespa are always fighting and arguing. But let's not forget, he's no saint in this either. He's just as snappish as standoffish and kind of arrogant and unpleasant to be around as anybody. The funny thing is that you are reading between the lines more than likely accurately because Quoth isn't saying that he's being a little twerp, but he is almost certainly being just a pain in the ash. Yeah, I mean, he talks about Martin being sullen and sarcastic, which, yeah, the dude is getting sick. He probably caught a cold in Crossan, being out in the wind in the rain when you're already feeling like warmed over crap. Oh, and then throw in wet boots on top of that. I mean, you know, I'm just going to throw this out here that when you've got wet shoes, it just does not feel good. Right. And now I have the internet wants to sell you waterproof shoes shoes, and I have made the point multiple times. I have waterproof shoes, but I do not have waterproof socks. So if water gets above the shoe line, it's just going to wick into my feet. There's just no getting around that. I've had knit shoes before, like the fly knit things, and it's all well and good during the summer. But the moment there is any moisture whatsoever, your feet are just soaked through to the bone and it puts your day in a bad place. Yeah, fly knit shoes that are supposed to be breathable canvas shoes, anything that isn't at least somewhat water resistant. And I didn't have to go camping very often. I did a couple times. You had to go camping often and it's like a rain cloud followed your family. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine having to constantly dry out your shoes over a campfire when you're supposed to be <laughs> on vacation and relaxing. This is fun. We're having fun. Is this fun? <laughs> yeah. I looked at all of this and I'm just sitting here thinking, oh man, no wonder they're all miserable. No wonder they're all at each other's throats. Their food is wet. Their clothes are wet. There's just this air of damp. Yep. And I did pick up on multiple times where in this section we have mention of wind. The wind kicked up and dumped us with the rainwater that had been collecting on the leaves. The wind played a significant part any time that Quoth showed annoyance or anger. It was always mentioned. Interesting. It's like the wind is just trolling him at this point. We also know that we are headed into a section where Quoth will be using his magic for less mundane things again. The wind is at his back. The wind is licking around him. 
he's starting to swell with that need to release magic. It's all collecting around him. Well, I think what this points out to me, like if we think about that that sentence that you just said there, this is really about Kvothe learning to be a part of the world as opposed to separate from it. Like, so when he's thinking about the wind as something that is doing him harm, that is making him miserable because it's blowing the raindrops off the leaves, because it is cutting through his coat, because it is potentially giving away his scent to an enemy. He's thinking of himself as separate from the world. The world is against him rather than the fact that he is a part of the world that he is just as much an actor within it as anybody else, as any other part of it. He keeps trying to think of everything as adversarial, when really there's probably more harmony in it if he cares to look for it. It's been four days of endless overcast and raining. And what's worse is not necessarily the rain, but the drizzle, the wet, damp air. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, Four whole days? That's your breaking point? Dude, welcome to the Pacific Northwest. We get that for months on end. But you don't live outdoors. No, I don't. (laughs) I also don't go camping in the Pacific Northwest for that very reason. Yeah. Something, something, chores outdoors, something, something, you don't like it. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Right. Outdoors, in the rain for four days, the leaves held on to the rain and the wind just sent showers of heavy drops all over them. Martin caught a cold. Their bread is wet. Dedan got worse. Like the man has no sense of self-preservation. He's supposed to be a, a person who has been relied upon to be a caravan guard and he can't be responsible enough to get food for the group. Or even himself. Just, here, have some money. Now I've bought alcohol. What? And he's not even sharing it? Like, he's just arguing with the girl that he clearly just wants to go at it with. Who clearly wants him to. And I'm just thinking, Hespa, you can do better. And I'm thinking, Dan, you probably also can do better. I think part of it is, it's really easy when things are happy. To say that your team is high-performing. I think we're looking at a situation where everyone's been pushed to their limits and nobody is willing to put in the extra effort to work together. Like, they're only thinking about their base interests at any given point in the moment. The thing they want in any given situation is out of reach for whatever reason. They snap at each other. And this is every member of that group. Except for Tempe, just because he doesn't have the vocabulary for it. Yeah, but also he is a weird calm in the eye of the storm. He's probably just as annoyed because they're all being sullen little babies. Right. And like I look at Martin's case, I don't know that he's necessarily being a baby about it. He's just probably not jovial. He's miserable. He's got a cold and he's camping. Yeah, it's not fun. He's been out there for about a month at this point. To that point, it was our 29th day in the Eld. And Dedan and Hespa are being such... Ugh. That, honestly, by this point, 
this little group should be socialists and they are not. It's not my turn to collect firewood, so therefore I let the fire go down. Dude, it doesn't matter whose damn turn it is. Someone's got to do it, and if someone's got to do it, just go do it. I kind of feel like they're both just at a point where they can't even... They don't have the energy to give more of themselves. To Dan and Hespa, you mean? Yeah, and I would say that's true of all of them. They're having a hard time giving a more generous reading of one another's actions or intentions. So like when Daydan screws up, Kvothe thinks that it's purely because Daydan is trying to get them killed. He thinks that they're both massive idiots and he's not willing to even treat them with any level of respect. And so they are like, well, if he's not going to treat me with respect, I'm not even going to bother trying to earn it. One thing I'd like to point out is that Kvothe is saying, I didn't want to send Dedan and Hespa off to go track together. So instead I left them at camp together. Like they're not going to be heard by the bandits if the bandits go by their camp. I don't know. So we just have a whole bunch of bickering back and forth. Kvothe yelling at Dedan for being an irresponsible a-hole and saying... A trained dog would be more help. And I have actually said before that I have applied and worked at jobs that a trained monkey could do. This kind of hit home. It's not because he's incapable. The Dan can do the things. He's just sullen and miserable and taking things out in the very worst possible way against not only everyone else but himself. He just doesn't want to be here. He might be actively trying to sabotage the mission so that they can just stop doing this yeah there is uh, such a thing as weaponized incompetence and i think there is a part of him that is just willing to say hey look we've got all of this money we have a fair amount of money not a lot not anymore not anymore over time and we basically are off the grid here we could theoretically just go our separate ways The only thing that's binding us to this task is the fact that we've said we're going to do it. But that isn't really binding if we don't want it to be. And if I can make this as miserable as possible, maybe other people will just agree, let's duck out. During their argument, Quoth says, I would rather listen to a jackass braying. Jackass, jackass. And shortly thereafter, Dedan stood and the wind gusted in the trees above us. Kvothe's anger, I think, is calling the wind. If not directly, it's at least piquing the interest of the wind. It's responding dramatically. Yes. And at this point, Kvothe realizes that he has pissed off someone who is potentially quite dangerous. And he immediately says, if you come near me, I will kill you. Because he's afraid, not because he actually wants to harm Daydan. Well, and because from the very beginning, the only way that he has been able to exert anything resembling control over the situation has been through fear. He has not been able to win the respect of Daydan in particular, because he's pretty much played the high hand the entire time. The mayor put me in charge. I'm the smart one. You're an idiot. And he's just gone out of his way to try and badger and belittle Daydan to accept his authority. And now he's running up against the limits of that. Like I said, that borrowed power only went so far to begin with, and he is well outside of the range of that. 
And that's the limit of trying to rule with fear. And that's the limit of trying to lead with fear. Because as soon as people cease being afraid of you, they'll turn on you. And Kvothe is a piss poor leader. Like, I'm just going to call it out right now. I would hate to work for him. I'd hate to work with him. He's a toxic individual at this point. He's not actually pulling his team together. I'm not saying he's a bad person. I'm just saying he's a terrible leader, a terrible teammate. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have him with you. No arguments here. So instead of continuing to rise to the occasion, the Dan does stomp off into the woods trying to find wood to burn for the fire. But you ever collect wet firewood? It's a fool's game. I mean, first you have to let it dry out and there's nowhere to dry out. They're kind of stuck if you're actually in reality. But you're also in a land where there are people that have magic and one of the company happens to have magic. It doesn't say that the reason that the fire came back was because Quoth used magic, but I'm 90% certain that he only coaxed the fire back into being because he's able to use sympathy. I think that's a fair read. You'd at least need to have dry kindling to get started. And then you have a very smoky fire. Yep. But then Dedan comes back with an armful of wet wood. Do you think he did it on purpose or do you think he was just fed up? I think he was just fed up. Drops it on the little itty bitty revamp kindled smoky thing that Quoth is insistent was the fire. Yeah, I don't think there's any intent. I think he's just fed up. He's like, there, I did the thing you wanted me to do. Are you happy? Obviously you're not, but you can't say I didn't do it. I don't think that there is enough energy for malice. Yeah, all of this leads to us kind of ignoring Tempe's return. I think that as readers, we are not meant to necessarily notice him coming back into camp. And as characters, they don't notice him coming back into camp, really. Everyone is just so much more focused on their own misery that having any empathy or any concern for their fellows kind of just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I kind of find it amusing, though, where like Tempe gets back and he just kind of hangs out, waits for everybody else to get back. And then he says, by the way, I killed two guys. Real quick, though, before we get into that, I had a friend back in college who was pretty quiet, part of a group of us, very smart, very kind, reminds me a lot of Tempe's personality. And anytime he tried to have a conversation with the more boisterous ones of us, including me sometimes, he'd kind of get stomped over. And I had to train myself to stop, look at him, go, hey, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. Please tell me what you were going to say. And sometimes I had to do that, not just for myself, but also for the other members of the group. Hey, he's trying to talk. Maybe we should give him a listen. Maybe we should respect him. Novel concept. Like Tempe is the sort of quietly dependable person whose presence goes unremarked because it's always there. So Tempe coming back into camp is not unusual. Right. Tempe being quiet, also not unusual. So we finally have all of the group back. Martin's come back from his trek looking for bandits in the middle of the woods and rain and the muck and the ick and the he's sick. And it seems like a really stupid plan to just keep doing what you've been doing. But 
And then bombshell. You're right. Yes. I think it's also just a testament to the way that Tempe views violence compared to the others, that he's able to be as offhand about it. He says it was hard, or rather he says it is not easy to kill two men. And because of the limits of language, both Quoth and Hespa specifically misunderstand, thinking that he had a difficult time fighting, as in the fight was difficult, not as in this is emotionally difficult. I think what that also underscores is that for all of Tempe's renown as one of the ADEM, it underscores just how new he is to the mercenary profession. It is emotionally terrible for him. But yeah, I also find it interesting where when asked to describe his attackers, he immediately goes into descriptions of their armor, of their sword, <laughs> you know, all of these things. Very specific things that tell you as much about what he's been trained to look at as it does about the actual people that he's encountered. Quoth says that the descriptions told him more about Tempe than they did about the people that attacked Tempe. I'd say that Quoth can be astute, but he is also still, I, we keep saying this, just so young and inexperienced and emotionally immature. I think it is something that is, he's not wrong in this because when you look at Let's just take it out of a combat scenario. Let's take, for example, a painting, right? You show someone a painting of, let's say, a famous one like Starry Night. You ask one person to describe the painting and they'll say, oh, there's a tower and there's some lights and etc., etc. They're out in the sky and it's dark except for these points of light and everything. And then you ask someone who's been trained as a painter and they'll say, oh, look, there's these unique brush strokes and swirls and circles. And I mean, neither one of these is functionally wrong, but the way they choose to describe these things tells you a lot about what kind of instruction they've had. So in that area of expertise that Tempe has been trained in, he is going to hone in on what kind of swords these people had, what kind of fighting technique they used, what was their musculature and build like, you know, are they fighting with brute force? Are they fighting with finesse? Are they wearing armor? If they're wearing armor, what type? Is it leather? Is it male? Is it plate? You know, all of these things that they're important for his specific line of work, but aren't necessarily the sorts of things that people key in on. But what I thought was also interesting here was this was one of those rare occasions where Tempe and Daydan were actually on the same page. Like Daydan's first question, what kind of armor? You know, <laughs> and, and it's like, it's leather, you know, <laughs> and that's like, okay, yeah, the two of them are talking about the same stuff. They're thinking, okay, this is the stuff that we've been trained on. However, Daydan is so sensitive to insults at this point that he's not sure whether or not to read the people who attacked me were slower than you as they were slower than you or slower than you. And he's just wondering there, like, should I be upset at the language that was used to describe this? And Tempe is just, it's a fact. It's not an opinion. It's not an insult. There's no emotion behind this. I'm describing things. To be fair to Daydan, he spent a lot of time here being the butt of every joke and every jab. Yeah. He has. He's also invited it. Yeah. We also have instances, though, of Martin acting defensively. 
because clearly Martin is so good, even when he is half dead from being sick, that there's no way that anyone could have been in that area and that Martin would not have found them. They couldn't possibly have snuck up on Tempe and have it been there for like hours. They had to have just gotten there because Martin already went through that space and they weren't there. Blah, 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 blah. I think that's not necessarily defensive. I think that's... No, he said it specifically defensively, like according to Kvothe. I also remember that Kvothe is an unreliable narrator at this point. Fair enough. I think Kvothe is trying to say, oh yeah, Martin's getting defensive here. I don't know that Martin's getting defensive. Like if you were being defensive... He would have gone even more about, no, they couldn't possibly have been there. Whereas it seems to me like Martin is using his experience to try and construct a timeline. This is the sort of thing that you would say if you're trying to say, okay, so I know that I was through there and I didn't see any signs of them and they didn't try and jump me either, right? Like had they actually been there while Martin was there? there's every chance that they would have gone after him just as much as they would have gone after Tempe. Like, why would they attack Tempe and not Martin? Especially considering Martin is weakened. Right. He's old. He's coughing. He is a target of opportunity. He has a dot on him. (laughs) Exactly. And again, these are bandits. They're also probably trying not to be found. They will want to make sure that this rando person in the woods does not get back to anybody else. I don't think Martin is being defensive, or at least as defensive as Kvothe seems to think he is. Continue on. More bickering. More assumptions of insults where Dedan is just focused on, she rolled her eyes. You're getting mad at me. You're talking shit about me to my face. And Kvothe is trying to get somewhere and doesn't yet know how long the light will last. Or is just asking Martin because he wants to make Martin feel like he's being respected. I'm not sure which. I think he's doing this because Martin is functionally the shadow leader. Kvoth is asking Martin because legitimately Martin is the one who can actually hold the rest of the group together. Is Martin always perfect? No. Is Martin able to know everything? No. But he does command the respect of Hespa and Dedan and Tempe and Kvothe. Like you notice here that Martin is the only one that they don't all immediately dislike. Martin is able to actually focus them on the objective here. Like Martin says, I want to get out of here. Let's just do this and get it done with. Why? He's sick of wandering around here the whole time. He's probably sick of everybody looking to him for every answer. You know, he's the expert, like whether he sees himself as the leader, whether he is the appointed leader or not, they are all looking to him for answers. And yet, Foth is saying that he needs to get Martin back to a town to be cared for, for his illness. I think part of that's well-meaning. Honestly, like there's no shade there. I also see a little bit of the... I'm fine. I'm fine. I can come into work. Pride that a lot of people get as they enter the workforce, especially when they enter into a workforce where there are very finite amounts of sick days and things like that. And you feel like you have to show up because you don't know how much sick time you're actually going to need. I 
have a post that regularly shows up like once a year, maybe two different posts, something that show up on Facebook every once in a while that have aged like a fine milk that are basically me warning my fellow students and teachers that I am going to go to school despite being sick. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, I think there is some impatience. There is some frustration. And there's also the acknowledgement. Like, he does finally accept the offer of some warm tea. On that note, I think he's just afraid of both enough that no, no, I don't want you to help me. No, no, I'm I, mm -mm, no. Not you. And he finally just says, fine, but this is the last airbender. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some stubbornness. There is some fear. There is also just you reach a limit at a certain point where, you know what? It would probably feel good. You've described it to me well enough. Let's this can't be worse. If you kill me, this will all be over. <laughs> And if it doesn't kill me, like it literally can't make things worse. But I do think that Martin is the one who helps set the tone. He's also what kind of gets people to stop bickering. He's the one who says, hey, we have an objective. Kvothe says, Yumi and Tempe will go out and we'll find them. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to fight with that. Okay, cool. Hespin, they dance, they back. Okay, fine. Let's just get this done. And... I don't think he's got an ego in who comes up with the plan or what. He just wants to get the job done. Dan, on the other hand, is like, but why can't we all go? And I'm just thinking there, because of the fire, you idiot. Because of the campsite. He's like, but we could just go kill everyone. And then it would all be over and done with. So interesting contrast here of Martin, who wants everything over and done with, trying to do it in a less idiotic way. And then Dedan, who wants everything over and done with, so he's just going to be impulsive. Yeah. And Martin wants to do it smart. He also is thinking, okay, we can go out, we can gather resources. We do need people to stay by the camp and you know make sure that all of our stuff is safe. Then they can go as quickly as they can, but they're going to need to act. There's no more time for searching, for bickering, for kind of lollygagging around the forest. They are losing their light. Yep. Real briefly, an actual sign that Quoth is using his magic, his sympathy. He takes a tiny bit of ash from the fire that is probably going to die and puts it on a cloth. It will not be a good heat source, but it will at least be a heat source. And he's just hoping that Dedan and Hespa will make sure that the fire keeps going. He has no faith. And then there's... Just more bickering back and forth. And if they hadn't been discovered already, they probably would be now if anyone was nearby. So many reasons that they just need to go back to town for a little while, at least. Regroup and maybe um, cut ties. Yeah, I think part of the reason that they're also saying they got to do it now. While, yeah, there is definitely that case for going back to town and regrouping and spending time to heal up. They're at a stage where their enemies are actually trackable and they may not get another opportunity like this again. If they squander the opportunity and go back to town, there's no guarantee that they'd be able to pick back up and find them. 
I think that they're falling into the sunk cost fallacy more than they are being effective here. But if I'm remembering correctly, it's not like the very next chapter is them actually having the fight with the bandits. Correct me if I'm wrong. It ends with them stumbling on the bandit camp. And then the one after that is them actually getting into the fight. I knew that they'd found them, but I thought there was at least some planning. They do go back to the camp. Again, with the more bickering and... Was that your stomach? Yes, that was my butt specifically. Did you fart? It was a very little itty bitty fart. It was very loud in my ear. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Have you been farting this whole time? No. <laughs> All right. So we have more bickering and eventually it just gets interrupted by Martin saying, hey, we're losing the light. Sure. To get off the pot. And without really waiting, Foth is like, we're going, you're staying. That's an order. And Dadan needs to get that last word in. And there's a standoff. And what piqued my interest right at the end here, thunder growled through the sky above us. A wind moved through the trees. The storm. What is it that Quoth is called? The broken tree. The fire. The flame. The thunder. The broken tree. The thunder. Thunder growled through the sky above us. Very narratively pointed and also a reminder that now is the time for action. To put a lampshade on our lens of the week. So with that, let's move on to Phronimos. But real quick, I really should stop saying the week because it is every two weeks and it has been for a year, even though I at one point tried to get back into weekly. Sorry. So let's move on to our Aristotelian Phronimos, our model of practical wisdom. So I picked Martin. Okay, I agree with you, but only because there were no other choices, not even a frog. Correct. Um, and part of that is that he's clearly operating at reduced capacity. Like none of them are handling this stuff well. They're not all in good shape. I think Martin is doing the best at minimizing the amount of blowback on the others, though. He's miserable and maybe occasionally snappish and sarcastic. He's snarky. All we've heard is just telling, not showing. <laughs> We haven't seen him openly insulting the others. We haven't seen him being dismissive or cruel to them or anything like that. His dry sense of humor has gotten drier and maybe a little more pointed, but he's also not managed to lose everybody's respect for him. He's also been able to maintain perspective, so he knows that they can't just keep up doing this ad nauseum. They've been doing it for a month. Now that they're finally getting a bite, their choices are to either give up the game or act. And he basically says, we don't have a whole lot of time. And that may be in the rest of the day or just period. They literally cannot stay out in the wilds like this for very much longer. So their choices are to either bag it and go home and forget about it or finish the job. And again, with that sunk cost fallacy though, it feels terrible to just bag it and go home. The tenacity that they have right now is pushing them to end it. And this is the first time that they've actually had an opportunity to. And I think saying, okay, we're going to take a scouting thing to see what we're up against. That's also wise. If it's something that they can legit finish in the night or in the next couple days, they should do it. But this is a mobile bandit camp. 
there's no guarantee that such an opportunity is going to present itself and they don't know how long it's going to last. So they owe it to themselves if they care at all about finishing it to at least figure out if it's worth doing, if it's doable. There's also the bit where, you know, it probably took him longer than necessary to accept even just something to comfort the raspy throat. I empathized with this. I know that when like I have a sore throat or if I have like a backache, it takes me a while to get to the point where I will admit to other people that, yeah, I could use an ibuprofen or yeah, I could probably do with something, you know, like a, a hot tea or something like that. It doesn't come naturally to me is what I'm trying to say. So I, side note, have something similar, except it's not necessarily that I won't accept help from others who are offering it. Like if I need tea, it is much more likely that I will get tea if I have someone to ask to make me tea than if I am relied upon to make my own damn tea in a case where I need it. Like if I feel like death warmed over, I'm not going to do for myself what I can get others to do for me. <laughs> so I will just neglect myself in these instances. However, if we're both sick, I will take care of you. Try to take care of you. I'm not as good at it as I would like. But I mean, I had a sore throat a few days back and I think it was due to an allergy problem because it just went away like after a day or so. And I think it was the weird little onion allergy that I have. But if it left to my own devices, if I didn't have you around, I wouldn't have bothered to go downstairs and make myself tea. But because I did have you around and because you were willing to help me, I got to ask for tea like five or six times throughout the day. Yeah. Thank you for asking. And I was glad to get that for you. But I can see how in this particular instance, Martin is more frightened of Quoth and therefore has no desire whatsoever to accept help from Quoth, especially things that he would then digest could be poison, could be magic, could be something else he is superstitious about. Or just regular stitious, because let's not forget, this is Ventus where... The knowledge of what Arcanists are like and what they do is pretty folkloric. <laughs> Very limited. Yeah. Well, and all of their examples of Arcanists are people like Codicus, who thrive on doing this over-the-top showmanship and live to give themselves a slightly sinister cast to themselves. You say Arcanist and people think evil wizard. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you think about like, Primitive medicine. I mean, like early 19th century medicine, right? And you're like, okay, we're going to take you to the doctor. Leeches, drill a hole in your skull. Yeah, that doesn't sound terribly reassuring. And then, of course, you had all of the, you know, especially around the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, you had a lot of snake oil salesmen who would drift through town promising miracle cures that only ended up making things worse for people, which tainted the whole notion of medicine and only heightened people's distrust of the profession. And then you have people making medicine out of mold. Yeah. What's that all about? Turns out it works. Exactly. Anyway, I think that you have chosen the only logical person in this section. Doesn't mean it's a bad example, though. No. Good job. All right, so it's your turn for a thing of the week. So this week, again, I get it. I am recommending a podcast that Will introduced me to that is just 
right up my alley, especially if you listened to our Recommended Things podcast. So it turns out Brennan Lee Mulligan likes to be busy <laughs> and he loves D&D. And so in addition to all of his D20, Dimension 20 stuff, he and Lou from the Intrepid Heroes campaigns on Dimension 20 and Abria or Abria, I'm not sure which one it really is. Sorry, I will get it better the next time I listen to something from them. And Erica Ishii are doing their own D&D RPGs campaigns starting off with Brennan being the GM and I've only listened to the first episode that's out but immediately I want to sign up for their Patreon and that's because the characters that they have created already are just so compelling and I want to listen to all the extra content. I had a hard time getting into actual play podcasts and videos and and things because holy buckets they're long <laughs> because you're watching people play D&D and D&D can take up your entire Saturday and so 2 hours is truncated but it's still 2 hours i swear though in this particular instance like the performers players gm are so compelling the setting is rich and vibrant and the characters are engaging interesting the setting is evoking ghibli and all of these fantasy tropes and worlds and and things that just spark all this joy all of this feeling of being in this world that has been spun around me and it's very similar to the way that I feel when listening to the audiobooks for, um, I almost said The Unsleeping City, The City We Became and The World We Make by N.K. Jemison. The audio production, it's like a radio play. And in this case, like, yes, it's improvised and yes, it's a game. And yes, I'm listening to people play D&D, which is something that, again, I didn't think I would be interested in nearly the way that I am. And there is a reason that they got 20,000 Patreon subscribers like overnight before they even really launched. It's because it's that good. I think the quality that comes through the most when I think about that, like as I was listening to it, was there is just a real warmth to it. We've only listened to the Prelude episode so far. And in that we get these characters dealing with tragedy and loss and fear but there's also this real warmth to the world that they inhabit and their way that they carry themselves they're defined by kindness and gentleness it's like listening to a hug and it's inspiring to me i really wish that we had a consistent group to play with i love playing dnd i love storytelling and fantasy worlds all sorts of fantasy worlds, urban fantasy worlds, high fantasy worlds, epics, small, like low stakes fantasy worlds. Think about like my neighbor Totoro. And I want to live in that hug world. The middle story of the prelude. I loved it so much. And on top of that, so Erika Ishii, they are expressive and engaged throughout the whole episode, even when it's not about their character. Erica's cackles are something to listen for. 
also their gasps and just the exuberance that they express. I just felt so much love for one another, for the game, for the setting. Not just my own love for all of that, but the love between all of the people involved in the podcast. You can tell that these are people who have really treasured spending time together and they they're letting you into sort of a sacred space for them it's treating these role-playing experiences as a shared communal space that they get to inhabit and that they're inviting us into that we get to share this world with them and not for nothing but up until recently it really did feel to me like games like D and other rpgs other tabletop rpgs especially have a very cis, white, male, young demographic as their player base, as the GM, as everything. So you don't get a whole lot of stories outside of the realm of like European-centric type fantasy novel thing. This story does not feel that way. Yeah, like it's definitely fantastical, but it doesn't feel like it fits into the mold of okay, this is just a Conan the Barbarian adventure or a Lord of the Rings thing. It feels a lot like Pan's Labyrinth to me. A little bit, yeah. Spirits, also a lot like Ghibli. Mm -hmm. And I think we need more voices that are diverse in all of our media, all of our entertainment, everything. Because I think we need to be able to empathize more with every different type of person that could be there to let people explore their own differences, their own spaces, but to also let people into those spaces so that the observers can gain empathy. I think it's amazing and wonderful what they're doing. And keep an eye on this space because we're getting some inspiration of our own from it. I'm not going to say anything more. Please don't. Go ahead. All right. So now it's time for seven words. You had the books this time. What did you pick? Uh, I did not have very many good choices. I mean, it was a short chapter, so. Yeah. So you get the best of what wasn't great. Okay. So there are two that I think are decent. There's like some that I think are kind of. I'm not even going to bother with them because they're all kind of bickery. So there's the one that's kind of. How much light do we have left? It's also kind of a cheat because the first word in that sentence is really Martin. How much light do we have left? And then I've got one that's, I mean, I don't want to choose it because it's basically both barking back in anger. It says, Blessed Telu, a voice of reason speaks. And so while I don't love it, I think the seven word sentence I'm going to pick is thunder growled through the sky above us. I like it. It's evocative. Uh, typing on an iPad. Behind the scenes things. All right. So then I had seven words from life and I was struggling for a while to come up with it. And I originally I was going to go with something that I had said while describing an expedition to pick up some miso paste from our local Wajamaya Asian grocery store. The hardest part was picking what kind. But then you said something here just a few minutes ago that it was too beautiful not to, which was. Have you been farting this whole time? <laughs> so yeah, that's that's it. That's our seven words. That's love right there. I was going to 
gonna edit that out. Now I can't. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, I needed that laugh. You did. And I'm glad I could provide it. Oh my god. <laughs> with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Oh. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 90 and 91 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of explosive resolution. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please join us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod. And we are currently running a 14-day free trial for the thing that I really, really, really want to share, which is essentially just us talking about other books right now we are in the middle of doing sandman extra podcasts every couple of three months we haven't done one in a little while because of the move but we are just about to start reading the fifth collected edition of the sandman and should have that out to you soon after this episode goes live I'm not looking at a calendar, and also, even if I was, I probably would misjudge when this is going to be out. Sorry. But we are going to be releasing those on the equinoxes and solstices going forward. We've only missed one. Sorry. But anyway, 14-day free trial. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. I hate to break it to you, but I am old and I have been sitting on the floor building Lego and listening to a D&D podcast for a few hours and oh, my back hates me. Oh, I'm sorry. Eh. I know the feeling. Well, to quote the unsleeping city. It is what it is. It is what it is. The order of the concrete fist. <laughs> We're nerds. <laughs>